Premier pro John Lithgow and pro Rise of the Planet of the Apes podcast. Uh, where we stick to the list for better or worse. Uh, this week we have changed tack a little bit. Uh, we have done movies of this sort before, but I think this is a really successful version of that kind of thing. Uh, we of course have watched Crazy Stupid Love, the infuriatingly punctuated Crazy Stupid Love. Yes, that second comma should not be there. Yes. Lawson is a stickler for linguistics. Uh, before we get into that, we'll talk about what we've seen within the week. First off, we all went to the cinemas this week. Yes, we did. Um, we all went and saw the latest Hercule Poirot movie, A Haunting in Venice. It is a mystery film directed by Kenneth Branagh. It is incredibly loosely based on the novel Halloween Party by Agatha Christie, like seriously, in name only. Um and in it, uh, a depressed Hercule Poirot, played again by Kenneth Branagh, has retired to Venice. And there he is invited to a seance by his writer friend Ariadne Oliver, played by Tina Fey. Um, and she wants him to see if he can prove the uh, mystic that's coming to run the seance, Joyce Reynolds, played by Michelle Yeoh. Yeah, see if she can prove her a fraud. Um, and... This is all going to take place at this supposedly haunted palazzo owned by Rowena Drake, played by Kelly Riley, whose daughter died mysteriously about a year earlier. And uh, when they get there, the seance starts and things get spooky. Somebody dies and Poirot has to seal the building to find out who among them is the culprit. So before we get too deep into this, um, well, before I do my thing, why don't you go around and say what you thought? Why don't you start us off, Sean? Yep. I love the atmosphere of this. It feels like a haunted house movie in a lot of ways, and it is held together by some great performances. I mean, Branner just keeps getting better as Poirot, and you've got a really good and really strong supporting cast. Michelle Yeoh as the medium. You've got Jamie Dornan here as a shell-shocked doctor. You have Tina Fey, who actually does a really good job as Ariadne. And the mystery is also very intriguing. As Lawson said, loosely based on the Halloween party. So, even if you know the Halloween party, you're not really going to be going in there and you're seeing the same things happening. It's a mystery in and of itself, and I'm glad for that. Because the mystery is actually very interesting. I just really love the way that this is shot, the way that it is filmed. There are moments of handheld camera, they do some camera trickery here, which is always really fun. And it seems like they were able to just focus down a lot on character and tone here. Instead of having to waste money on doing the backdrops of Egypt, like they did in Death on the Nile, it was a lot more stuck in the one place. And that's to its benefit. The music from Hilda Gunnstorter as well is also very good. It fits with the tone beautifully. It's different than the kind of vibe that Patrick Doyle brought to the films, but it works for this one, to give it a spooky and creepy and sad atmosphere. 
Yep, for me, I adored this. I'm a big fan of ghost stories, as you would all probably have ascertained by now. And I'm a big fan of these Poirot stories, uh, these particular adaptations. I adore the hell out of Murder on the Orient Express. It reignited my love of uh, movies of this sort. Uh, I really like what Branagh has, did with that movie, and I love his version of Poirot. And I really had a great time, up to a point, with uh, Death on the Nile. One thing that happens put me into a pretty foul mood for about a week after that. Uh, but, again, it wanted that reaction from me, and it got it. So and in, that, in that vein, it was quite successful. Um, but this one has a distinctly different tone. The tone of this one is haunted. Uh, not strictly in a supernatural sense, but you can feel the ghosts around Poirot. You can feel the the grief, the loss, the totality of what his job is bearing down upon his soul. And events occur to Poirot here that put him on the back foot. He is not at his sharpest. He is not at his most keen and aware. So... That's a really fun place to find Poirot in. Uh, I love the atmosphere here. The sets are incredible. The setting is fantastic. Venice is a very, very good location for a ghost story. I also really adore how the movie was shot because of a much more intimate space. They have to shoot in a much more clever way. So at certain points, the camera goes handheld. And you can tell... When it's handheld, uh, they use some of the Snorri Cam stuff. They use the location and the sound of the location to their advantage to turn this not only into a murder mystery, but into a ghost story in a very classical sense of the word. I, I had a great time. Atmosphere was perfect. The performances were brilliant. Brana is great as Poirot. Uh... Tina Fey was really great as a Proro's writer friend. Uh, and Michelle Yeoh is always, always incredible. Um, yeah, Jamie Dornan's really strong too. Great cast. Great cast. Great movie. I had a blast. For me, I am not quite in sync with you guys on this one in the sense that for me, it's probably the weakest of the three films. But uh, I still find it to be a lot of fun. I do like how different it is from the other two, what a pivot it is from uh, the previous installments. And uh, I wouldn't really call it horror. It's not really. It's not trying to be. But it's using the tropes and the atmosphere and the, the aesthetic of horror. Um, and that connects to the character journey that Branagh has constructed for Poirot throughout these three films. He sort of strung them together in a really interesting way to create an ongoing journey for the the character of Poirot to undergo throughout these the stories being sequential. Um, he's way more glum than he is in a lot of the iterations of Poirot in this one and because he's still dealing with um, some of the stuff that happened in Death on the Nile, just as uh, Harley is still dealing with some of the stuff that happened in Death on the Nile. Um, yeah. But uh, the, the ghost connection to the whole thing, I mean the idea that this is a haunted house to begin with, that horrible things happened in the past but all of these characters also have their own ghosts it becomes allegorical they all have their own trauma or their own guilt and Poirot is one of Poirot is one of them um and that makes for a really intriguing p 
piece of, of thematic material for the movie to wrap itself around. Uh, the mystery itself is a pretty decent blend, I think, of, of Agatha Christie with Hammer Horror. Um, the sort of, cause there are just genuinely inexplicable things that Poirot sees yeah, uh, and experiences, yeah. and you're sort of wondering, or the movie wants you to wonder, I figured it out pretty early on what was happening, but um, the movie wants you to wonder how they're going to explain this away if it is not ghosts. Um, but they walk a fine line, and, and they do right to the very end as to, you know, how deep into the spirituality and the paranormal nature of things you want to compare this. Um, the the biggest flaw of the film, and it's a big one, I think it hurts it quite a bit, um, is the lack of character development for all of the suspects. You spend very, very little time with any of them, um, and they're just not nearly as interesting to watch on screen as they were in Death on the Nile or Murder on the Orient Express. Um, I do think that uh, Ariadne Oliver is a nice addition to the cast. Tina Fey is, is very strong. I also got to call out Jude Hill as the little kid who is yes. stuck in there as well. Very Jamie good. Dorn and son who previously played Jamie Dorn and son in another Kenneth Branagh movie, Belfast. <laughs> He's basically playing a young Kenneth Branagh in that movie. Um, I will say that in the end, I thought that the mystery was the culprit was fairly easy to see coming. Uh, yeah. I do wonder the purpose of departing so drastically from the novels of taking the Agatha Christie style and just creating your own story when you're using the allegedly using the book I mean why even bother <laughs> but um it it makes a strong use of the single location that it finds and they the other two were single location movies also in a, in a kind of sense but they were traveling single locations they were the train and the boat um but uh, this one is really just an old school drawing room murder mystery of the detective won't let anyone leave the estate until they find found out who the culprit is. And there's a storm outside that prevents the cops from getting to them. Um, and that's well used to create mood and atmosphere. It's clearly a, a bit of a budgetary restriction as well, which is used uh, to its benefit, I think. I mean, this movie costs only two-thirds of what death on the nile costs the budget dropped from 90 million to 60 million um well the the less big names on the cost also come into that equation definitely yeah which i think is another strength um but uh these don't all have to be travelogues and really he's running out of agatha christie books to adapt as travelogues if he's like if he really wants to do the a thing in a recognizable location you know He's going to have to do some searching or come up with another another um, more basically in name only one, I suppose. There is this one Agatha Christie story. It wasn't any of her recurring um, detectives, but it was literally like a murder mystery in ancient Egypt. And um, I've just forever, ever since I read that, I've wanted to see a proper adaptation on it of it and the bbc like announced one years ago and then just never spoke about it again so i don't think it's happening now but um i would very much like to uh see something like that in the future but i hope this does well um death on the nile didn't mainly because it came out in the beginning of last year covid was still a big concern for a lot of the primary audience for these movies which tend to skew older so i'm hoping that 
given the lower budget and the current climate in terms of uh, where the pandemic is at, um, I hope it does well. It, it is out. It is on track. We're recording this this opening week. It's on track to outperform Death on the Nile. And considering Death on the Nile made 120 or something like that worldwide, which is not great for 90 million, but is decent for 60. Yeah. Um, also consider pandemic. Yeah. Coming out of that too. Um. But uh. Yeah. I I like these. I'm always up for another one of these. Uh, at home, I have finished off the Planet of the Apes trilogy, the Matt Reeves, uh, Rupert Wyatt Planet of the Apes trilogy, I should say, um, with Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. It is a post-apocalyptic science fiction movie directed by Matt Reeves. It's set about 15 years, or no, about 10 years, I think they said, after the uh, first movie, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, which was our deep dive last week. And Caesar, played again by Andy Serkis via motion capture, is leading an ape village in the post-apocalypse, the simian flu having wiped out all of humanity, basically, save for a very small group of genetically immune survivors. Um, But they run into some of those survivors, and conflict is created there. Uh, The humans are led by an ex-military guy named Dreyfus, played by Gary Oldman, and they want to basically get through Caesar's territory to access the dam in the hope that they can generate some electricity for their compound. Uh, And Caesar and a human named Malcolm, played by Jason Clarke, try for a peace, um, try to make some sort of agreement that will get them all what they want without conflict. But that creates internal friction among the apes, especially with Cobra, played by Toby Kebbell. The, the thing that works about this the most is that it's actually a political thriller. It's actually a yeah. political thriller with a cast of, of apes. Um, it's a different beast. It's apes with guns screaming at each other. It's it's a different beast so much from the original Rise of the Planet of the Apes, and that works so well, the way that they've actually been really gutsy and really ambitious in the way that they've said, no, this is a, a really transformed sequel. Um It's really deeply invested in the internal politics of both groups, Uh, doves versus hawks, peace versus aggression, um, the meaning of leadership and and the power struggles that accompany leaders. Uh, There's also this fairly well-handled parents and children thread, Um, this idea of parents being driven to secure a future for their children or for for others to avenge the children they've lost um and how that you know basically fight for resources uh puts these different groups of characters in conflict with each other and it does such a good job of shading it all out like gary oldman's character you'd expect in almost any other movie to be a lunatic or like just an outright like you know the apes must die kind of guy but he's got some really interesting texture and detail to him. You learn about him, all you need to know about his character in this one wordless scene, which is just brilliantly acted by Gary Oldman. And, you know, it's moments like that, little grace notes like that, that give this movie its dignity and its weight as a as an intellectual thing, in addition to it being, you know, just a, a really strong science fiction story. Um, Matt Reeves is really good with that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. He likes interjecting quiet moments um, it, into his projects. It makes a, a really big choice midway through. 
um, that when I saw it the first time and when I saw it this time, you know, I really like War for the Apes. It would have changed War for the Planet of the Apes a lot. Part of me still really wishes I could have seen what they would have done if they had stuck to their, if they had just stuck with what they appeared to be doing in that choice midway through Dawn. Like, I, th- mm. I think that could have been a really interesting pivot for them to make. And I won't lie, I'm a little not sure how much I love them pulling out of it. But um, nevertheless, this, the second half of the movie is dynamite. Uh, Got to give a big shout out to my boy Maurice. Um, he This is a great movie for Maurice. He gets a lot of really good stuff to do here. Um, I'm feeling real good about choosing him as, as the Lithgow recast last week. But... Uh, Circus is really just astonishing um, as Caesar and the way that you just see this character developing and the technology that helps create him developing. It's one of this series' greatest achievements. Um, Oldman is excellent. Toby Kebbell comes out of nowhere as this like really assured and full-bodied motion capture actor. I mean, he's not known for being a motion capture actor, but... He does incredible work here as Cobra. Um, there's also Jason Clark, I suppose. I mean, this does take place in that inexplicable period where Hollywood thought that maybe Jason Clark was a movie star. Uh, it feels like we've all uh, gotten past that at this point, but I was never... I mean, I like to see him when he rocks off. He's fine. I was never really on board this train where he's just in everything for a few years, but... Um, the the CG is brilliant, and the the ruined world world design, the the Earth reclaimed by nature, with these little pockets of humanity just like taking refuge in the city hall, basically of San Francisco. That's where they're all living now. It's this last little bastion of one, what once was that they can still hold as a as a home, and but everything else has been overtaken by plant life by dirty apes well exactly like that's the that's the the visual parallel there is as it this is the apes world now and all of the city is being overrun by the flora and fauna it's it's not human humanity's place anymore um and that's all handled really well and i just love the score as well by michael giacchino um it's available for streaming in australia on disney plus if anyone is interested Lastly, this week, I have War for the Planet of the Apes to talk about. This is set five years after dawn, and uh, there is a war that has been ongoing for that time between apes and humans, led by the sadistic, unnamed colonel, played by Woody Harrelson. Uh, and they have the apes have found a way to a new home across the desert, but uh, Caesar uh, is driven by revenge. After all of this time fighting the colonel, and after all he's lost fighting the colonel, he wants to bring that guy down. So he and his uh, OG ape bros go to confront the colonel and end the conflict. This is just a really great finale. It snuck up on me how brilliant this is as a finale. Because I do remember, I talked about it last week, how I watched Rise and Dawn both in a row. And then there was a year before I got to um, got to war when it came out in the cinemas. But I didn't connect with war the way that I connected with it this time. I think mainly because I didn't quite have some of the... I don't know. I don't know if I was prepared for how dark it was. But 
this is a really quite a quite a brutal. It's and grim. grim. Yeah, yeah, it is. We also th- we also think very differently now about movies than we did then. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I was only six months away from starting my list, so um, yeah. I've I you know I'd seen Citizen Kane and loved it, so I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to let myself off the hook that easily, but um, it's got a, like a, a real finality to it. Like it feels like the end point for these characters and for this story. It is kind of shocking in retrospect to realize how bespoken artisanal the whole trilogy is. That, And, you know, credit for 20th Century Fox for letting these movies be made in the fashion that they were made. Because you can see on paper how a lot of the decisions made and a lot of the ways in which the stories went could seem kind of anti-commercial. Uh, but mm. they went with it and they paid a lot of money <laughs> to make these things and it, and it worked for them. It paid off. And as I said last week, this is just quietly one of the best trilogies of the 21st century. It's dark and mature. Um, and this final story, this final installment, has a real Apocalypse Now vibe of going upriver to the insane military guy who's gone completely off his rocker and uh, is now basically running or might as well be a cult in the middle of nowhere. Um, all that stuff is mixed with this really interesting Moses and Spartacus kind of subtext that's running through the Caesar character and his actions here. But it really leans into the, the biblical allegory overall in a way I found quite rich. Um, obviously, there is Caesar. He, he has quite a number of things over the course of this trilogy that you could point to as being a link to um a link to the you know stories of uh the bible and stuff like that but you've also got like maurice and co who are basically his disciples um so there's some really interesting stuff there caesar's darkness is a great way to finish this character's journey that this is a uh ape who has been on the forefront you know the guy leading the evolution of the apes basically the guy who's Started off as just an ape, but got smarter and smarter, created his own culture, created his own government, basically, learned how to speak, learned how to make war, learned how to uh, negotiate. And now he's come across the thing that, uh, you know, drove him to rise up against the humans in the first place, which is, you know, a real lust for blood and violence and darker impulses that he can't control anymore. and that's such an interesting way to finish the story of Caesar is this this final struggle for his soul essentially, um, and it matches that journey with the journey of Cobra, and also more immediately the Colonel, the Woody Harrelson character, um, and it gets back to that whole uh, idea that the whole trilogy has been about, in my view, which is what is what makes a person a person and what makes an animal an animal. Is it simply what species you are? Or is there, or is it about the way you behave and the things that you value? Um, the motion capture is just truly astonishing. The CG in general is so so good. It came out six years ago. It still looks incredible. Uh, the performances, though, are just astonishing. There are no human heroes anymore. None of them. Um, it's all on Circus and his fellow motion capture performers to get us to invest, to get us to root for these characters, and to care about them ultimately making it out okay and it's just you know extraordinary collection of performances 
from top to bottom. Steve Zahn and Karen Conoval in particular stand out as pretty brilliant performers as two of the other apes. Karen Conoval played Maurice. Um, but Caesar also, just the development of him as a character, not only the themes of the character, but also how he has evolved um, just from purely how the character is presented. He's so much more well-spoken. He's so much more verbose in this movie. Um, and Circus is just magnificent at tracking that whole change across the trilogy. Like, it's a significant achievement. I mentioned it last week that the role that he will be remembered for, the role that will be on his obituary, is Gollum. But this is, I think, his best performance. Uh, the human stuff is really the weak link, if there is one. There is some interesting stuff with a mute little girl named Nova, played by Amir Miller, uh, that they find out in the wilderness and end up taking care of. But all of the stuff with Harrelson is hit or miss. And my problem with him is that he is essentially the character that I was worried the Gary Oldman one was going to be in Dawn. But here they've actually made him. He's just a raving lunatic with really nothing for the audience to find redeeming about him in any sense. You know, that he's a villain, not a person. Um, but once again, the music is incredible. Michael Giacchino is back. And uh, you can find it available for streaming in Australia on Disney Plus if you are so interested. But that is me done for the week. What about you guys? What have you been watching? So we have something left over from last week that we forgot to talk about. Uh, it is something that John and I have been looking forward to that Lawson was unimpressed with at the end of his viewing. Knock, knock at the Cabin, directed by M. Night Shyamalan. What are you talking about? Based- I love that. Oh, I must be thinking of something else. I had some concerns, not concerns, I, I thought that M. Night backed out of the grimness of the original ending, but I thought the movie on the right, whole was yeah, yeah. great. Oh, okay. Uh, based off Paul G. Tremblay's novel, The Cabin at the End of the World, a family vacationing at a remote cabin is suddenly held hostage by four strangers, who ask something unimaginable in an effort to forestall the apocalypse. Uh, John, why don't you say what you thought about yep. the movie first? I enjoyed this quite a bit. The plot of it is so fascinating, and that's the end. The fact that it's these four absolute strangers who are telling you that you have to kill a member of your family to save the world. And going through all of the things that that could mean. Are these people just insane? Do they have an ulterior motive? Are they telling the truth? And it goes into all of that, and it's held together by really good performances. Uh, Jonathan Groff and Ben Aldridge, who play the main couple here, are very good. And they've got a lot of chemistry, and specifically with Kristen Cree, who plays Wen, their daughter, their adopted daughter. And they really do feel like this beautiful little family who are in the middle of this absolute shit show that is brought to their door by Dave Batista, who plays Leonard. Uh, he is followed by Sabrina, played by Nikki Amuka Bird, Rupert Grint, who plays Redmond, and Abby Quinn, who plays Adrienne. And I don't think there's a bad performance in the lot. This does have a few of the M. Night Shyamalan-isms, although it doesn't chicken out with the ending in the way that some of his endings have. It leaves it as... it leaves it in a good place, let's say even though it does change the ending from the original novel. Dave Bautista is really the big thing to talk about here. How he can just... He's the best wrestler-turned-actor. 
he's done such a good job at creating this image of him as a character actor because he is one now and he's gotten so so much better over the years because he's really put his head down and he's tried to work at it and he's picked really interesting characters like leonard but the other three aren't slouches either rupert grint for what we get of him is really interesting uh nikki amica bird plays sabrina is also really fun but abby quinn i think stuck out for me as the one of the four who really sold it to me that this is a thing that these people believe and all of the terror and the confusion and the righteous work behind that, if you know what I mean. Like, you could see the belief in her eyes, which I think was very well done. All in all, I think this was well shot, it was well edited, the music was quite good too. Yeah, I enjoyed this. Uh, so I had a pretty great time with Knock at the Cabin. You can tell it has a literary base uh, in terms of its concept. It's such a strong concept. Um, I don't so much have an issue with the changing of the ending, but I do agree that the original ending would have been a lot darker, and the sort of ambiguity we end up with in the novel. My concern is that the the ending of this one seems basically designed to, uh, it, it seems like it's been contorted by Shyamalan to match his own worldview. Yeah, um, but one of the great strengths of this movie is its cost. Uh, Groff Aldridge and Quio, fantastic. Um, they have such this, they have this great chemistry together as a family unit, and that's really, really great to see, because if they didn't have that chemistry as a family, you wouldn't buy the struggle and the difficulty they're having. But my MVP for the movie's gotta be Dave Batista. He is phenomenal here, he is gentle, quiet, and devoted. He knows that this is his purpose as much as he hates it, but he will do it because he has his own reasons to try and stop the end of the world. And I really like what the movie is doing with the four strangers, what each of the strangers represents. Uh, I noticed quite quickly that they're color-coded uh, in terms of what they're wearing and what their jobs were. Um, I like how structured the movie is. It has that literary episodic structure to it because there is like a time limit to things. There is a structure to how the prophecy, whatever it is, has to go. Um, I think that's a really strong part of the, how the movie works. And the concept itself is really compelling. What would you sacrifice? Who could you bring yourself to sacrifice to save everything else? And, case in point, is everything else worth it at the end of the day? Uh, I love how we stay in the cabin for the majority of the film. We do get a the odd flashback here and there to provide context to uh, Eric and Andrew, the, the parents of this little family. Um, but the rest of what we see from the outside world is on like news reports and stuff. And this is not the first time that Shyamalan has done... The concept of the end of the world, shall we say? Um, this is perhaps, I think, one of the stronger showings. It's better than uh, the happening. Let's just put that out there. It's by, so much better. By an order of magnitude, John. By an order of magnitude. Uh, yeah, I had a great time with Knock at the Cabin. I think B 
Batista is a really, really great actor. And I just want to see him getting interesting stuff like this. He's a great action star, but this Blade Runner 2049, the stuff he did in that little prequel short that they did for that, that's the kind of Batista I'm looking for. Not the action star, because I know he can do that, but the more character-based stuff. And you can tell that that's where he wants to move in the future. I, I had a really great time with Knock at the Cabin. I'm interested in checking out the book myself. So that is what we have seen within the week. Do you have, does anyone have a pet take? No. Nope. So now we will play for you the trailer to Crazy Stupid Love. 25 years of marriage and you have nothing to say? I'll just say it. I slept with someone. If you, you keep count, talking, but, I'm going to get out of the car. I think the fact that I did it, it just shows how broken we are. Okay. How much, how much really... Oh my God! getting a divorce yeah amy heard you crying in the bathroom we all thought it was cancer oh thank god man yeah that's my relationship <laughs> hi can i buy you a drink uh-huh let's get out of here want to get out of here yeah. what are you doing later <laughs> i don't know i do there's lots of beautiful women in this bar but i can't take my eyes off of you it's time to go home oh it's forward of you but okay yeah. should uh, i pull the car around have you been drinking i'll drive hey ladies man guy any tips of the trade? Your wife cheated on you because you lost sight of who you are as a man. Why don't you take that straw out of your mouth? It looks like you're sucking on it. <coughs> okay. You're sitting there with a supercut haircut, and you're wearing a 44 when you should be wearing a 42 regular. Credit card. Where are your wallets? Would you sleep in them? Jeez, God. Yeah, probably. You would? You gotta take control of your manhood, pal. Can you put on some clothes, please? Oh, I'm sorry, is this bothering you? Beautiful. Mm. Mm. What do you want to do with me? I want to show you off to my ex-wife make her really jealous. <laughs> oh, man. I met a girl, and she is a game changer. She's your soulmate, right? Go get her back. Wow, how old are you? <laughs> I'm in love with her, and I don't know what to do about it. You know, when I told you that I had to work late, I really went to see the new Twilight movie by myself. And it was so bad. That was the trailer for Crazy Stupid Love. It is a romantic dramedy directed by Glenn Ficarra and John Requa, and it follows Cal Weaver, played by Steve Carell, a dorky, middle-aged man who thinks he has it all. A wife, Emily, played by Julianne Moore, whom he loves, and two children, precocious 13-year-old Robbie, played by Jonah Bobo, and much younger Molly, who would be completely forgettable if she were not played by Joey King. Robbie is the sort who will one day be posting an apology on social media that's just a screenshot of the Apple Notes app, and his test run for future cancellation is the dogged pursuit of his babysitter, 17-year-old Jessica Riley, played by Leo Tipton. Jessica is uninterested, not only for the obvious reasons, but also because she's got a massive crush on Cal, 
Cal is unaware of this, of course. He's otherwise occupied when his modest domestic bliss is suddenly ruptured after Emily asks him for a divorce. He's blindsided, even more so when she reveals a one-night stand with her colleague, David Lindhagen, played by Kevin Bacon. It isn't anything calculated. It isn't that they don't love each other. Somewhere along the way, Cal and Emily fell out of sync. Cal moves out, finds his own apartment, and takes to spending his evenings drunkenly repeating the word cuckold over and over in a bar of (laughs) disinterested and increasingly exasperated patrons. One of these patrons is Jacob Palmer, played by Ryan Gosling, a ladies' man whose charm and confidence see him going home with a different woman each night. Tired of Cal's general bad vibes, Jacob takes him under his wing and coaches him on how to pick up women. Eventually, Cal gets the hang of it, but he knows he's just trading one pathetic display of desperation for another. He still loves Emily, and she still loves him, but there's a distance there that neither seems able to cross. Ironically, as Cal becomes more like Jacob, Jacob makes the reverse metamorphosis. He meets Hannah, played by Emma Stone, and when his initial flirtations become something sincere, he finds himself genuinely smitten for the first time in his life as each character finds themselves more and more unmoored by these emotional odysseys, their subplots begin to interconnect. This is one of those movies where everything collides together at the end, and when it does, things get very messy indeed. So, before we get too deep into this, why don't we each go around and give our timed 30-second thoughts on crazy, stupid love. Why don't you start us off, John? Are you ready? Yep. All right, three, two, one, go. I enjoyed a lot of what this movie is doing. Steve Carell, Ryan Gosling, Emma Stone, Julianne Moore, even John Carroll Lynch shows up. Hey, it's good to see you, bud. I love a lot of the performances in this movie, and the script is so witty, and the story itself is exploring these really jagged edges of love. And that's always very interesting to me. I could have done without the subplot between Robbie and the babysitter. Could have done without that, but otherwise, I really enjoyed this. All right, you ready, Harley? Yep. Three, two, one, go. I had a really great time with this. This is very along the lines of something like, uh, this is 40. Very similar in terms of tone. Kind of the beaver if the beaver didn't go as dark as it did. I was Uh, thinking, like, what if he did just pick up, like, the hand puppet of a moose or something? Hmm. Uh, strong cast, Carell, Moore, Gosling, Stone. Uh, like you said, a little bit of Joey King in there uh, for our amusement. Uh, John Carroll Lynch shows up. I love how everything collides, gets messy, but eventually works out in the end. For the record, I did pause during Sean's interjection, so you did get your 30 seconds. Yes. Uh... I really love this movie. I think it's a lot of fun. I think it's very charming. It's so well performed, but it's well written also. And I think that with the exception of a few moments that have aged pretty not well, um, it mostly is pretty right-headed. And uh, I I appreciate how much empathy it has for all of its characters. Mm. Um, Mm. So uh, I'm looking forward to discussing it. I also really do like movies that have that structure where there's a lot going on and then it all coincides, all all coalesces, yeah. Because you're wondering, oh, how is this all going to form together? And I remember having seen 
that scene between all of them where after Cal has is trying to make that grand gesture in the backyard. I remember seeing that scene somewhere and as I'm watching the movie, I'm like, when's that scene gonna happen? Oh, I'm putting the pieces together. Oh Hannah is Cal's daughter. Yep. I I love that little twist. It reframes a lot of what the movie is doing and it throws everyone into utter chaos. Did you know about it as well, Harley? No. No, I started to put the pieces together when Stone kept rambling when under under pressure and that was so like what Julianne Moore's character was doing. I was like, hang on a tick. There's some deliberate mirroring going on right here. If you hadn't gotten already that everything was going to connect, you should have by the time Marissa Tomei resurfaces in the parent-teacher interview. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I when do want to just... I was like, shit, I can't watch this. Oh, I can't. The key oh, word God. being asshole. I do just want to um, start off really quickly here just uh, to make sure that you guys both know um, that Leo Tipton uh, is credited under a different name in the film, but has since come out as non-binary. So right, I just right. want to make sure that we're all on the same page there in terms of pronouns. Uh, they're the one who plays uh, Jessica, the babysitter. The babysitter. Yeah. So uh, uh, this is a movie that I think has gotten a pretty solid spot in the cultural consciousness. Like, I think in terms of all of those stuff, like you brought up This Is 40, Harley. I don't hear about This Is 40 nearly as much as I hear about Crazy Stupid Love. Well, I was just talking about in terms yeah, of Yeah, I, I know that. I know, I know. But I'm just saying in terms of the types of movies mm. that this is, um, this, I find, stands pretty tall among its compatriots mm. from that well, era. This is, a lot more, this is a lot more successful yeah. in what it's going for than This Is 40 is. I do like This Is 40, don't get me wrong, but I think that this one is a lot better structured, and it's not relying on the Apatow factor of letting the actors just do their Yeah, it's, it's written by Dan Fogelman, who has gone on to be the creator of uh, This Is Us, and um, mm. also the writer of uh, writer-director of Internet Punchline Life Itself, which um, I've not seen, but I've read enough about to know that I don't want to see. <laughs> yeah. Um, and... In some ways, you can see some of the connecting dots there. You know, the, the This Is Us stuff. You can see that sort of populist, mainstream, you know, family drama. Bit of schmaltz, bit of comedy. like The interconnectedness. Yeah, the alchemy of it is quite similar. And um, that's something that I think maybe is what helps this movie stand out, is that it does have the follow-on from... This is us. It does have the tail um, because uh, Glenn Ficarra and John Requa are not people I'm hugely familiar with as directors. Even though, as I look at their filmography, I, I see that I've seen a, quite a bit of their work. Um, I've seen Focus, which is the Will Smith Margot Robbie uh, movie, and I've seen Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, which is actually pretty good. It's like Tina Fey uh, as a reporter in Afghanistan embedded with a US military team. But other than that, they've directed I Love You, Philip Morris. So I've seen three quarters of their filmography, their directed filmography, I, I guess. Um, but they're also, up until this point, 
mostly known for uh, movies, uh, for writing things, and writing things that you wouldn't necessarily um, expect. They wrote Cats and Dogs. <laughs> I remember that movie. They wrote Bad Santa. They are credited with the story for Looney Tunes back in action. Oh, woof. That's all really distinct and different from one another. Yeah. Um, they were staff writers on The Wild Thornberries. Oh, no, they only wrote one episode of The Wild Thornberries. They were staff writers on The Angry Beavers. <laughs> That's a beaver connection. <laughs> um, but, yeah, they actually did stick around with Dan Fogelman a bit, too. They directed some episodes of This Is Us. So, uh, clearly, whatever working relationship they formed, um, they uh, were quite well, um, they were able to continue that on. But they're also the creators of that new Kiefer Sutherland spy show on Paramount Plus, Rabbit Hole, Mm. and uh, apparently directed We Crashed, that Apple miniseries starring Jared Leto as the WeWork guy. Mm. Did anyone watch that? Yeah. Um, it's on it's on the list, but like it I remember it did get some attention mostly for Anne Hathaway more than Jared Leto, but yeah. mm. you can say that about most Apple things. Did anyone watch them? But <laughs> Yeah. No matter how good they are. They just don't hold the public zeitgeist, I don't think. Cause, you know, for streaming services, Apple TV is kind of the most I don't know. People have a distance to it. I don't know, I'd say Peacock. Apple TV's at least got, like, Severance and Ted Lasso and Foundation, yeah. and, you know, you can point to some that have reached the mainstream. Peacock is... Peacock is Peacock. <laughs> yeah. Um. But, uh... Yeah, this doesn't ha- have that issue that I found with This Is 40, where a lot of it was the actors riffing. Yeah. Like, it's really... This feels much more tightly plotted. Yeah, it's very well written. That's the thing is that the screenplay is good and it's actually very methodical and careful about how it develops its story, how it develops its characters. Like, that's the thing I said in my 30 Second Thoughts, but that's the thing I think that makes this movie work as well as it does for me, is the empathy that it has for its characters. Mm. Um, even someone like David Lindhagen, you know, they there's a, there would be a compulsion, I think, in most movies to make him basically the Alec Baldwin character in The Cat in the Hat, you know? Yeah. But he's not. But he, he comes off as, like, legitimately nice. He's just a guy. He's just a guy yeah. who works in the office with Julianne Moore and has fallen in love with her. Yeah. And when he goes on that date with her, he's genuinely interested. Like, he's not faking or acting like a douchebag boyfriend like Josh Groban is here. And that's the thing that I think gives this movie uh, some chops for me, Gives it gets it mm. some credit from me, is that it's dealing with... Um, some thornier, more mature topics and character arcs than you would necessarily expect to see in most romantic comedies. So I don't think it is a romantic comedy. I called it a dramedy. I think that is more mm. where it resides. It yeah. is. It finds its story and its charm in pathos and upset a lot of the time. Yeah. It's about characters overcoming things. The only really outright romantic comedy part of it is the Stone-Gosling duo. Yeah. Mm. But even then, that that will ends up merging with the rest of it. Yeah, but it goes it goes pretty swimmingly from beginning mm. to end for that that couple. Um, the others are all dealing with a certain type of uh, I don't know what to call it, like romantic distance. Distance, yeah, 
there's an inability to communicate or to connect to find common ground, despite however they might want to. And that's something that is threaded through the Cal um, Emily stuff. It's threaded through the uh, Robbie and Jessica stuff, but also the Jessica Cal stuff. I mean, this idea that there is just this babushka doll of people who want other people that they can't have, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and I love how it's played, too. For a lot of the people, the person who wants them, or for some of the people, the other person is a non-entity. Like, they, like Cal with Jessica, he knows that she's there, but in his mind, it's like, your purpose is babysitter. That's your job. That's your I don't role. know who's that. Like, she's the son he of... He hasn't considered she's the, son of, the possibility. She's, not, yeah. she's the daughter of his best friend, also. Yeah. yeah. Like, he's, like he he's known her for a long cons- time. I think it's more yeah. just what any sensible adult man yeah. would view a teenage girl yeah. as. Like, he hasn't considered it, and it just never crosses his mind, because why would it? Yeah. Yeah. And he's, like, really horrified <laughs> when it all yeah. comes out at the end. I do love he's how... Like, Julianne Moore is the one that puts it, like, it actually kind of clicks. It's like, oh, like, all of the, like, slightly odd behavior starts to make sense. Yeah. (laughs) The slutty muddy comment. Yeah. Because she's flabbergasted when she hears that the first time, like, Jessica, honey, what do you mean? But I do love how when that plot line of everything comes into it is when Cal is yelling at Ryan Gosling, you stay away from my daughter. And he's like, Bernie. <laughs> and out of nowhere. He just comes out like a wild hog. Yeah. Just tackles It's very him well down. framed, yeah. And then just when you <laughs> the think. The timing is so good. Just when you think it's all about to be resolved, David Lindhagen turns up to return a <laughs> jumper. Then Gosling Gosling's like, takes off his ring, just you're the guy? sucks him you're in the guy? The okay, you hurt my guy. Bam. I do love. The, the cut after the cops get there yeah. and they're all like sitting there taking down details and it's like Lindhagen, Cal, um, Jacob and Bernie all in a row and the <laughs> officer's like, and now you're David Lindhagen and all of them like are just like Lind- oh, Lindhagen, Lindhagen because <laughs> it's like this, with this running, <laughs> running gag throughout the whole thing that no one can get the name right. I love how like even the cop looks at David and he's like, Ugh. yeah. Like, he can't even. And he's like, next time, stay indoors and keep it in the family. <laughs> Don't even. <laughs> that was such a great touch. Um, But what amused me the most about that was everything just started ramping up and up in that scene. And every moment someone's putting something together, John Carroll Lynch is holding the windmill and he's just screaming at the top of his lungs that he's going to kill him. But then how he drops it when Lindhagen turns up as well? Like, that's it. Because <laughs> even he's like, oh, this prick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, his priority just shifts right onto Lindhagen. And, like, the scene where Robbie is in his mum's office and David comes in. His face drops. He looks at this guy with a look that could like, kill. He's like, it's like, so you're David Lindhagen. Lindhagen. So, Mr. Lindhagen. No, it, no, it's better than it's better than that because he's like, "So I hear you're a pretty good soccer player." And he says, "Yeah." So, David, I hear you broke up my parents' marriage. <laughs> like, <laughs> he puts up his chair so that he's taller, and then when he leaves, he faces the picture on his mother's desk towards David. 
Yeah, the picture of Emily and Cal. Yeah. But he what, he pulls a power move right there. What I think is something that ends up being the backbone of the movie and what unites these sort of the same plub, subplot, but also separate subplots at the same time of the Robbie and Jennifer and Jennifer wanting Cal kind of thing. Um, it's like romantic dysfunction being modelled by the adults while yeah. the kids try and figure it out. Mm. Like there is a real parallel between Robbie and Jessica. Like mm. that Robbie yeah. wants Jessica, who is inappropriately old, older for him, and um, even in, despite her complete lack of interest in him, and will keep mm. pushing it because he thinks they're destined. She does the exact same thing with Cal. It yeah. we we it's what I think keeps that storyline. Well, it's what I think keeps Robbie from being a pure write-off. Is that Jessica's doing the exact same thing? Yeah, it's mm. just like whenever. But like, I was just still sitting there going, "Kid, you gotta stop." Yeah, like you're at putting the, at way the end, too much effort into this. But yeah, at the end when Cal is like, "True love does exist," I wanted him to come back to the microphone and just say, "Unless it turns into obsession, then it's illegal." I need to make that very clear to everyone in this auditorium. Stalking is wrong. But, like, some of the funniest little moments uh, come from uh, Cal and Jacob. Yeah. And how they get to know one another. Uh, personally, I love the stuff with Marissa Tomei. Yeah, I can't go with you on that. I think it's a cartoon character in a... Mm. In a um, Movie that otherwise I've given a lot of credit to for having empathy for its characters and for coming up with, you know, emotionally complex and three-dimensional character arcs. Mm. I think that Marissa Tomei is extremely underserved. She starts shrieking! Yeah. After they leave the room at the parent-teacher interview, she fucking shrieks like a banshee! Yeah, and like, she's fired. Like, let me just tell you, there's no coming back from that. Like, it doesn't matter... You know the context surrounding it. Her behavior in, in that moment gets her fired. But, but she's mm. a cartoon character. She's she's coming from a Looney Tunes cartoon. You can't um, fire a cartoon I, character for acting like a cartoon well, exactly. character. Exactly. That's that's the that's problem. Discrimination. Is for me, she's entered from a different movie. Yeah. I guess in that I do agree, but I suppose that whole bit's just a little absurd in comparison to a lot of the rest of it. So I'm taking kind of refuge in that. Away from the legitimate drama, it's sort of a release valve, so to speak. The, it's not uh, the idea of it that rubs me the wrong way. It's the performance. Mm. I don't think it's a good performance. I think it's actually bad um, mm. because it's there's no there's no up and down to it. There's you no know? depth. It's all up. Yeah. It's all operating at this level the entire time, and that's a long, mm. long, long time to operate at that level. Yeah, but like then there's the stuff with. Cal and Jacob, and all of the, how to put this, pickup artist shit that Jacob is tre- is teaching him. I think it walks a really fine line with Jacob, mm. but ends up walking it successfully. That there is there is a version of this movie, especially considering its its age now, it's twelve years old. There's a version of this movie that is so wrong headed when it comes to the character of Jacob, or it pushes him so far into the you know Barney Stinson line yeah. of things that you you completely lose him in 2023. The audience is just rev- like treats him with revulsion. We recoil. Mm. Um, and I think it walks a fine line between making him like this 
guy that you just got to roll your eyes at and, mm. you know, find kind of exasperating. But at the same time, you don't write him off because he's not yeah. he's not manipulating anyone. Uh, he's not lying no. to anyone. He's It just feels like he's doing this. He's trying to fill a hole in himself. Yeah. He's trying to do this because he doesn't know another way to be a man. He doesn't know another way to act. And that comes into which is perhaps my favorite scene where well, I think what comes down to it is it it's not born out of a um mm. out of a lot of these versions of this character you'd say you'd say hate women. And he doesn't hate women. Like, there's never anything misogynistic or anything like that coming from him. Mm. But, like, my favorite scene is when him and Hannah, they're just talking. And he explains that, that whole night. his dad died when he was young, and he saw his dad being a soft, gentle guy who was... He saw his father being taken advantage yeah. of. So he tried to be not that, and he tried to be the opposite, and that's why... When he saw Cal, he was like, I need to help this guy. He and Stone work so well together. Yeah. Like, they oh, work yeah. really, really well together to the point where, like, Hollywood has since cast them opposite each other twice more. Um, obviously, yeah. La La Land, but also uh, in Gangster Squad in 2013. Everyone remember Gangster Squad? Mm. <laughs> I remember the name. I remember I th- the posters. Never seen yeah, it. Yeah, I think it needed a better name. Because the moment it said Gangster Squad, I was like, well, that goes my interest. It's not a good good title. They have this outstanding chemistry. Yeah. Now, with Emma Stone, she could have chemistry with a houseplant. She is that talented. But in particular, Gosling and Stone just have this rhythm that they sink into. Yeah. And it works just so well. And Stone is always fantastic i've never seen a bad performance from her and i'm i've always liked ryan gosling as an actor but after barbie i'm going back and seeing some of his other performances and thinking he's actually doing a lot of he's actually thinking a lot he's not taking a lot of the easy roads he's putting in a lot of the work I actually think this movie is a really important movie for Ryan Gosling in terms of him getting to be the Ryan Gosling that we all know now. Um, Because he's sort of in that early Brad Pitt mold when we first Mm. meet him. Like when, when when we're coming up to this movie in 2011, he's coming off of a lot of things like The Notebook and he did Fracture, that Anthony Hopkins thriller and... He's about to go and do the Ides of March, and you could sort of like see him doing this sort of Hollywood tr- trying to figure out where he fits. Is he yeah. the matinee idol? Is he the superstar? Is he is he going to be Tom Cruise or is he going to be Jake Gyllenhaal or what? Like where he fits there, and what? But this movie, I think more than any other, kind of cements him in the audience's mind. Like it, it tells mm. us that he can do comedy, and it then I think is very influential in terms of sending him down the path that he goes on. And he doesn't end up becoming a Jake Gyllenhaal or a Tom Cruise or a Brad Pitt. He becomes Ryan Gosling. Yeah. And he forges his own path. I think that, that, uh, you know, the Gosling thing is a little (laughs) closer to Gyllenhaal than it is to those others. Sure. But, you know, he, he is an actor who definitely, if you look at his filmography, likes kind of unusual 
roles every now and again. Like he yeah. likes to test himself. I mean, this is a good year for him. It's Crazy Stupid Love and Drive both come out um, in 2011. And those two movies operating side by side, I think, are very important to getting him where he is now. Equally with Emma Stone, I don't think this movie is as important for Emma Stone as it is for Gosling, but it is coming off of what is a really brilliant, maybe two and a half years for her, the two and a half years that really launched her into the career she has now. She does Zombieland, then Easy A, then Crazy Stupid Love, then The Help, then The Amazing Spider-Man. Um, yeah. Like, it's a really, that's a quick rise in uh And in she stayed consistent. Yeah. The whole time. And it's it's also very funny uh, to me that in Easy A, obviously, there's that whole Scarlet Letter thing. Then it then it happens again here. Yeah. It's like, interesting. That story must have been on a couple of minds around that time. And I just think that Stone is one of my favorite actors working. Yeah. Currently. Because not only is she usually very high quality, but it's this consistency. She can do it all. She can do the serious. She can do the comedic. She's very good at comedic stuff. And she's not... I don't think she's been pigeonholed into a specific kind of character. She just happens to bring her own self to the characters. You know what I mean? Which is so interesting about that... Oh, uh, what's that new movie that's going to be coming out? It's Poor got the things. Foe. Poor things, yeah. Poor things. That looks really interesting. Yeah. And, and a bit of a change of pace for Stone as well. And that could be very, very interesting. Moving into that kind of sphere as an actor... Well, she's already it's made more- another movie with Yorgos Lanthimos that is filmed and is like ready to go. They don't even haven't even released the plot for it yet, but it's called And. It also mm. stars Willem Dafoe as well. But um, do you think it's going to be like an X situation? Oh, who knows? But like that, like she's on the Yorgos Lanthimos train. I mean, she obviously um got a big boost out of the favorite a few years ago, mm. which was Lanthimos at probably his most most mainstream and and easily accessible <laughs> mm. uh no one getting turned in poor thing doesn't look exceptionally accessible no but it's like it's gotten like critical acclaim from all of like it's been at um festivals mm. already 50 reviews on Rotten tomatoes and it's at 98 percent. it's like, right it, from the trailers it looks right up my alley and uh, another really great actor here steve carell showing that once again he can move between comedy and serious stuff at the drop of a pin. Steve Carell has like a soulfulness to him that yeah. I think yeah. any movie is always well served by bringing that out. I mean, I think that there were a lot of, and there still are to a certain extent, uh, a lot of um, projects that try and catch hold of the wrong thing about his Michael Scott yeah. character from The Office. They ca- catch hold of, you know, basically the eccentricities, the business. They don't catch Mm. hold of the character underneath. The sadness. Yeah. Whereas I think that that's the stuff that he's clearly more interested in. I mean, that's clearly the stuff Mm. that he's continued to do. But um, that's the stuff that makes him really successful as a performer is when he is in this kind of thing. I mean, if you look at the... It's almost like a tale of two careers. You can see him sort of going the one direction, which is this sort of like... Ed Helms meets Adam Sandler direction, and you could see him going this more serious route in the other. That 
He does stuff like uh, obviously the Despicable Me movies or Dinner for Schmucks and and things like that. The Incredible Burt Wonderstone. Um, these are movies that aren't successful and don't have an impact. But at the on the other end of things, you see him pursuing stuff like this, like Seeking a Friend for the End of the Fox World. Catcher. The way, way back. Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Fox Catcher. That was Ben Stiller, Holly. Yeah, he's not in. No, yeah, that's right. Um, no, I must be thinking about uh, that one where he builds the little dudes. Yeah. Uh, the Big Short. Escape to Marwen or something. Vice. I mean... Yeah, Escape to Welcome to Marwen. Yeah, that one. Marwen, yeah. It's um, it's something that is... It, I always like it when I see him. Yeah. There's this... I Soulful is a really good way to describe that quality that he brings. Because I could even notice that when he was in an admittedly small role in uh, Asteroid City, his presence brings a specific energy to the proceedings, and he works so well in a dramatic sense. And here, sorry, and here they're using both his ability to be comedic and his ability to be dramatic. That's a lot of fun. He's an um, actor who's also matured in a really strong way yeah like you you see actors adam sandler is one of them who are stuck in arrested development they can't yeah. adjust their um their, their thing their bit to fit the way that the culture moves around them and Car- Carell does you know adam sandler yeah. will be doing that voice until the day he dies his last movie will be doing that voice <laughs> but final words will be spoken in it Carell is has and, and Carell was never as broad and as shallow as a lot of what Adam Sandler like Carell has no movies in his filmography as bad as Grown Ups like I don't mean to suggest that as bad as I, Jack and Jill yeah but there is this sort of um but you know who does have a movie as bad as Jack and Jill in his this in his filmography who fuck what's his name <laughs> he normally. <laughs> Come up with the, the name oh, before we do the introduction. Devil, to Devil's Advocate. I had Pacino. it, then I lost it. Pacino. Pacino, Al Pacino. He was in Jack and Jill. Because he was in the, the Dunkachinos <laughs> thing in that movie. Sorry. Which I still think is such a uh, upsetting No, no, thing. no. It's, it, that's the best way it could have turned out, Jean. You tried to bring the entire conversation to a stop by <laughs> interjecting this Al Pacino thing. Uh, but uh, what happened? Was so much better. Um, um, I I do reckon that. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> I guess we get a decent amount of Kevin Bacon. He's not doing anything tremendously special here, but he's good for what he's here for. I like what Julianne Moore is doing, even though she's not as well served as some of the other performers here. Yeah, it's um mainly that's a priorities thing. Yeah, she she gets it. She's better, far better off than Tamay and Bacon. Tamay and Bacon are sacrificed on the altar okay. of plot mechanics. Um, yeah. But more Bacon comes out with dignity. Yeah. But more <laughs> has actually some really, uh, you know, again, it had, the movie has empathy for her. Because mm. you can talk about this movie in, in a lot of other versions of this movie where, you know, she cheated. She's, she's the bitch. She's the, the, you know, talked about the Scarlet Letter. Like, there's a, there's a version of the movie that judges her from minute one, never stops judging her. And mm. this movie is actually far more mature and, and interested in, in that character. And in the way yeah. that Cal reacts to it as well. I mean, there is anger and there's hurt, but there's also a complexity of emotion 
to it that again contributes to this movie being i think more mature than a lot yeah. of other films of the sort because there's that scene where uh, he's come back to the house and is doing the gardening yeah uh, because that was one of his passions when he was at home with his family and he does not think they'll be able to do it the way he wants it done uh, so he's been coming around to do that while they've not been there and secretly doing that while they've been inside the house. And Emily calls Cal and it was to ask about like the pilot light. She didn't actually need that. She just wanted to talk to him. And that was such a moving moment for me because that is who they were. That right there. And you don't see that at the beginning. You see that right there. And if they could only get back to that, then everything be Gucci. But there's still that sort of fear mm. in both of them that it's not going to turn out right Yeah. if they try and get back to that. Well, they don't know how to find their way back to each other. Yeah. You know, they don't know how to repair it. I'm so glad yeah. that that scene you're talking about where he's watching her, he's talking on the phone to her while watching her through the window from the backyard. Yeah. And realizing that this is all just a, you know, an excuse to call. That there's actually nothing wrong yeah. with the pilot light. Yeah. He's just he's seeing her standing in the kitchen pretending to go and turn the pilot light on on the phone. And I'm I was waiting for the movie to do something like have a dog barking in the background that she hears mm. on the phone and in real life to turn it into a punchline. Yeah. And it doesn't. And I'm so not, I'm so yeah. glad that it doesn't. And the the part that gets me the most is when. Uh, he finishes giving her the instructions, and she just goes, "Oh, um, okay then." She's, like she wanted yeah. the conversation to go on longer. She than thought that. it was going to be more complicated than that, and that was—I don't know—that kind of just hit me. Yeah, the the simplicity of that moment was quite beautiful, and it's these um, little glimpses where you see how beautiful that family really is, where. Because we don't talking... get started with them at a good spot. Yeah, they're talking about Robbie, and they're like, man, that kid scares me. He's a little weird. <laughs> and, you know, making that joke about how they were glad they swapped their their <laughs> baby for that one at the hospital. <laughs> and it's all of yeah. these little moments, and all of these little things that families do. They've got inside jokes. They rib on each other. They have all of these little moments, but you're seeing them frayed and fractured apart, and you're seeing them in only these very little pockets until something other happens, something bad happens, mm. or they're reminded of the situation or all of this kind of thing, these little pockets of happiness, and that is what they're trying to get back to, and well, it seems people... to be what they're getting back to at the end. Mm. They're people who have been together a very long time, more than half their lives, will learn that they got married when they were 17 because they got pregnant with Hannah. But they are people who know each other really well. And because of how young they were when they married, they're kind of, they don't quite know how to be together anymore, but they don't know how to not be together either. Yeah, yeah they don't know how to be themselves. Yeah. And, apart from one another. And that keeps coming back to... The way that that sort of A plot, the mothership of this story, the Cal Emily stuff, is such an important reflection on the stuff going on with Robbie and Jessica and Jessica crushing on Cal is mm. that it is that connection. Like, it, it, Jessica is 17 and Cal and Emily got 
together when they were 17. Like there is this feeling there there is a connection there. And it's deliberate. It's deliberate. It's got to be deliberate because they keep saying it. And I think that's some of the most rich and rewarding stuff in the movie. Mm. Because it does and it doesn't do it in like an overt way in a hitting you over the head way. It's also clever how they give you the state of affairs at the beginning of the movie, you know? Like, Robbie just can't keep it to himself, really. Kid's got he needs to impulse cool control off. issues. He needs to cool he off. He needs to pour a bucket of water over his own head and chill the fuck out. But I also love the bit in the office. Yeah. It's like the one scene we get of Cal at work. <laughs> and they're all like, and- oh, divorce. Oh, oh good, good. Because we, we they heard you crying in the bathroom. They thought you had cancer. Jonah Bobo, though, is really good as yeah. Robbie. Like, yeah. Yeah. he's giving a really good performance and a really, like, self, self-assured performance as well. I mean, he's the, the main kid um, in Zathura. Yeah. Um, so it was interesting to see him. And he, he didn't do anything really after this. I mean, he was a, a character on a what appears to be have been a Nickelodeon show that ran for quite a while called The Backyardigans that was going on simultaneously with this. But, you know, ever since 2014, he's done nothing. And I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of not not sure how I feel about that. You know, if he's living his mm. best life, good on him. But um, I think there's yeah, something... Yeah, sometimes actors pop up while they're young, do a couple of movies, then, you know, move out of it. And that happens. But there's something there that makes me think that, you know, there's a real... Um, there could have been something yeah, there. Yeah, there's a star quality to him. Like, he can hold the screen in a way that is... Um, I would have been interesting to see, interested to see where that goes. And again, mm. I think it's part of his charm and his, um, his likability as a presence that keeps us from writing him off entirely. Mm. Also, Same for Leo Tipton. Dude- I mean, Leo Tipton... Mm. I mean, we're not quite as um, she doesn't get quite as bad. Uh, the character of Jennifer, she doesn't get quite as bad as Robbie does, but she still gets pretty bad. <laughs> like, yeah, that's going to be a crime. That is a crime. Yeah, but like, she's also seventeen. You know, she yeah. should know the. She's e- not getting good advice, even if the moral part of it isn't a deal breaker for mm. her. She should. She is old enough to know the legal jeopardy that Cal would be in. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, and then think about the legal jeopardy she would be in because she hands the photos to Robbie at the end. Yeah, that's the one part of the movie Crime. where I'm. Uh, that's the one part of the movie where I'm like, okay, that was the red line, and you just stepped over it. You got so close yeah. to the end. You're like two, three minutes from the end of the movie, and this is the so one moment you're where you're nearly you, at the line. You've got the ball in hand, then you just. Face plant. Yeah. Who no who trips over underwater and on what? Like like it's such a bizarre moment and I get that they're trying to do this thing of tying everything back together in this neat little bow, but the moment those photos enter the equation, I'm like, fuck this is tenuous ground we're standing (laughs) on. This is fucking ice. And I'm just sitting there going, she had those photos with her. Why? <laughs> exactly. That's yeah. actually what, a damn good the... question. Yeah. And like She had them with her. Why have you done this shit? Yeah. Um that is another thing that sort of is um 
Now I think about it, yeah. That is another thing that sort of marks this as an interesting point. And I think about, I think I said it about no strings attached as well. It's that movies made in this era are sort of this interesting limbo space between modern internet culture and the internet culture that was. That there, Mm. there would be no cause if this movie was being made now for there to ever be a physical printed version of those photos. Like, it's yeah. just not how anyone, let alone a 17-year-old, would provide nudes to anyone. It's just not how yeah. the world works anymore. Um, mm. Carl better thank his lucky stars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but, like, Dodged it's a all... fucking bullet. It's all sort of centred, like, this. The, that whole part of the story is all centred around um, her, like, getting an actual physical camera to take the photos print them all out and put them in like an envelope <laughs> like it's so archaic well yeah but it's it sort of and, and the same can be said of the character of jacob that is a guy who lives his life yeah. on tinder in 2023 um, oh yeah it's that dude is not coming to the to the bar realization that he ends up coming to nowadays he's going down a lot a lot of darker pipelines than just that i don't know about that but like the whole um I don't know what to call it. The gameplay loop that he's got going on in that bar <laughs> is not the same. No. Just imagine if Hannah hadn't come around. Imagine 10 years from then, he's still in the same bar. Sad. Well, even even then, you know, Hannah would be on social media now. There'd be so many more different ways to find out that she's related to Cal, that she's his daughter. Like, there's a yeah. lot more going on there that would, you know, it, it's just interesting to me. Especially, and it has been as I've gone through all these old movies. I mean, I remember the the moment in Final Destination Five that you know worked for me only because I was so being so used to watching old movies by that point. I didn't notice that the phones were were so bulky. Um, <laughs> but uh, you you got incepted. But it's the way that the technology affects story and yeah. You know, it was that thing uh, of a frog in a boiling pot, but the water is slowly getting hotter, so slowly that the frog doesn't realize that it's dying. That's actually a really great point, Lawson, about that movie there. Um, and I think it is so interesting how all of these characters are inches away from crossing a line, and it is only in that moment with Jessica and Robbie that you know, a flat red flag comes up and it's like, okay, no, that's not. Yeah, because it looks like right after Jacob and Hannah meet, he's done with all that. Mm. That that couldn't be more distant from who he is now. Yeah. And he's he doesn't give up on the relationship. He accepts what his new responsibility is. Yeah. He spends time with that family, gets to know them. He shows that he's a genuine guy. You know, he still struggles with these new feelings that he's having, but he's not lashing out yeah. at anybody. In fact, like, he doesn't he doesn't act angry to Cal either. In fact, he still wants to be the guy's friend after everything because Cal can provide him with something he didn't have, and that's a father figure. Well, also, let's be honest, like, you do get where Cal is coming from. And oh yeah, Jacob. Absolutely. Jacob is a self-aware enough person to get where Cal is coming yeah. from. Yeah, he knows. He gets it. 
And I do and appreciate that's how that's why they- he comes up to him in the bar. He's like, I, I get it, but I am different now. And I don't know. It shows that the character does have, and he gets so close to saying, "I wanted to be like you." Yeah. He gets so close to it. I don't because know. Because the way that uh... the way that Carell was um seducing the women was not with Jacob's game plan. It was by honesty, by listening, which was very different to the way that Jacob had conceived of how those knights work. And I don't know, I think we could have done with a little bit more of them. I don't know, I just think they worked really well together. I do like the ending, how Robbie is there giving his little valedictorian 8th grade speech. Okay, how does he end up valedictorian of his class... While still doing all this other elaborate bullshit. Either way, right. how I much appreciate- how much time do you think the stuff depicted in this movie would take, Harley? I don't know. He's got his whole little thing on wheels. Yeah, he's not. He's non-stop hassling. You know, I, Jessica. I like how he's going on this whole what we would call in you know the godforsaken twenty twenties incel shit about how love doesn't exist, and true love is a lie, soulmates are a lie. I love that Steve Carell, Cal, gets up and is like, I'm sorry, the speech is bad. It was getting depressing, he's wrong. Because it exists, I experienced it, I met my soulmate when I was 15. That's a good monologue. It had good monologue structure. Like, a good monologue, and this is a talent that a lot of writers develop over the course of their writing is a monologue is, for the most part, self-contained. It is its own mini-narrative with thematic words. It has this sort of circular structure. It bookends itself. And that was just a really good monologue at the end there. Solid, solid screenplay. It's well-written. It's well-performed. I'm not sure how much I like that it exists. Because it seems like that's the one part of it that seems very cliche to me, is that this must all end with a public declaration of love. Um, It seems, and again, that's it teaches Robbie the wrong thing at the end of the day, I think. In attempting to tie everything up neatly with the other storylines, well, to be fair, let's face it, the Jacob Hanna storyline was kind of already wrapped up at that point. Yeah. Um... In an attempt to tie up the Emily Cowell storyline, it it sacrifices the Jessica Robbie one into making the decision it makes. And yeah, I don't know. You know, it it just seemed a little too well. It's an important, obvious. it's an important moment in the sense that it makes good on the way that Cal Cal's own troubles have been modeling Robbie's responses. Yeah, like that that final um. The final shot of the movie is Robbie looking at his parents and smiling is not a coincidence, I don't think. Yeah. It's sort of the point that um but yeah, like that is it is a fault of the movie that it can be a little bit confused in how it stitches these things up together. Yeah. Um and that like I keep coming back to that thing between Jessica and Robbie, like it's that one crossing of the line that <laughs> It takes it too far. Take you. You can't. You can't move. Like it. It's just a really, really unfortunate thing to have chucked in under the door on the movie's yeah. way out. It's like, ha ha! Have fun with this hand grenade. Um, 
Like it's a- it's actually doing okay up until then. Like it's even yeah. like making a little bit of a joke in that scene about how um he says like in a few years I'll look just like him. <laughs> yeah, in a few years I'll and look then just I'll like him. <laughs> That's a that's a great line. It's a very yeah. very funny line, and the way that the actor performs it is great. And then they lob that grenade back in behind them, and yeah. Um, I do think that we're reaching the end of our conversation here. Um, so there is one entry in the IMDb Parents Guide segment this week. It is in the violence and gore section. Uh, for the uninitiated, the IMDb Parents Guide segment is when we talk about the prudish and or pervy entries in the IMDb Parents Guide for the movie that we are talking about uh, this week. Jacob and Cal slap each other's faces in manly man gestures of both camaraderie and superiority. They do it constantly. Yeah, they do. <laughs> I do like how yeah. Cal brings the little slap to the face back at the end. And... like. Jacob's like, yeah, it kind yeah, of I returns that. them back to a friendship mm. e- equilibrium, almost. Mm. They end, they end at a place of balance, yeah. which is nice, and it it does tell you something that the only person that Jacob can call about meeting his girlfriend's parents for the first time is Cal. Yeah, how lonely Jacob is, not just without you know a, a father figure, which Cal ends up becoming by the end. But, like, anybody to talk to. Like, the dude's got no mates. No friends that he can lean on for advice. That's a sad way to live. Yeah. And, I don't know, I do like how they bring that back and put them back on that equal playing field. Well, now why don't we do our segment on recasting this movie with the Muppets for the Muppet parody version of Crazy Stupid Love. Uh, I think, for me, that... um. The fairly obvious ones to keep as human beings um, are Ryan Gosling and uh, Hannah. Yeah. Okay. Because then okay. it's even funnier when Emma Stone turns up at the end as, like, yeah. the child of Kermit and Miss Piggy, because those yeah. are the ones. Yeah, yeah, I do actually, like that. that works remarkably well. I, I They're was who I'm also picking. Thinking, I was thinking Kermit for Cal, because I just imagine him jumping out of the moving car. And that is such a fun <laughs> image. See, actually, the more I think about it, Miss Piggy works better as the Marissa Tomei character. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so, who but do I, we get in the more role? I don't know. Invent a female frog? Yeah, female Muppet somewhere along. Because that's the thing, is that we've learned doing this this segment that there is... There's a startling lack of yeah. uh, female Muppets. It's like her and uh, Janice. Janice. Jan- Why Janice. do you keep calling her Janice? I don't know, it just, it sounds more accurate for a Muppet, but then I just think, no, it doesn't fit for the character. I'll- Janice, but there's a, there's a lot of female Muppets on Sesame Street, but a lot of them are children. You have- <laughs> Yeah, let's good. stay away from that. Yeah, so, so for- That is also quite tough. For John Cal Lynch's character, I think you get- Fozzie Bear? Fozzie? Because yeah. the image of him tackling Kermit out of nowhere makes sense. I swear I've seen that before. Um, for the Kevin Bacon character, the reporter Muppet? Yes. Or do you have it be the handsome pig? I thought about that. I think the reporter Muppet kind of fits that vibe more. Cause Fair enough. Because the handsome pig is sort of a little... The handsome pig is Johnny Bravo. Yeah. And that doesn't quite yeah. fit the thing. 
think Pepe Pepe the Prawn as um Robbie. <laughs> yes, the fact he just won't stop. That's true. That's a good one. Yeah. Um Can't think of Jessica... again, can't think of anyone for Jessica. Jessica is where Janice Yeah. Fit, That's seems the best to fit. comparison, yeah. I think. You'd have to create uh, another Muppet, I think, to for to play Emily. Yeah, probably. Like yeah. that's going to be our ultimate like get out of jail free card. Is oh, we can invent a Muppet. <laughs> well, to be fair, when we get to a pre- predominantly female movie, which we will inevitably do, it's going to be crazy difficult to no, we just put cast the Muppets into that. Male Muppets in their roles. I mean, I guess, but. I also like the idea of keeping that scene where uh, Ryan Gosling talks about Statler and Waldorf, <laughs> and you have Statler and, and Waldorf oh. commenting on the comments about Statler yeah, and Waldorf. I do like that. You're like, you meta that shit. Because you, in all of these, you got to keep Statler and Waldorf in there commenting on the events. Mm. Yeah. that That's what they do. And you'd be missing out a Muppets movie without them showing up. You could have the Hogthrob at the bar, just as a background character. Um, you definitely, I think you want Sam the Eagle in a cameo as the principal at the end. Because yeah. just having Miss Piggy whisper that thing into his ear, then him going, hmm, <laughs> and like, mm. nodding his head. <laughs> just very gravely. <laughs> that's like, kind of, um, that's, that justifies the whole Marissa Tomei character, really, for me, was that one yeah. moment I did like that. There were a lot of little fun details like that, I've got to say. Like, little details in the performances of the characters and how they all responded to different situations. I rewound a lot of scenes to watch mm. over and and see how everyone reacted. And Now we're going to talk about who our MVP for the movie is, what our favourite scene or sequence was, and who we would recast with character actor John Lithgow. Knock, knock, who's there? <laughs> sure, my, my MVP here is a tie. I'm going to give it to Gosling and Stone because I think that they are a double act in this movie in terms of what what about their performances work so much. And I think you only need gesture to La La Land to see, you know, just how successful they are together. I mean, they are a really, really strong on-screen pair. They could, if if they just did like a, a romantic comedy together once or twice a decade for the rest of their careers, I'd be fine with that. Like, they work mm. together so well, and it follows on to my favourite scene or sequence, which is all of the stuff at um, Jacob's house the night that Hannah comes home with him. Like, all of that whole conversation, like, all of that chemistry and play, it's such a well-written, well-performed sequence that really also touches in on some of the movie's themes and, you know, investments in romance and attraction and, you know, the... um the values that the movie has about, you know, finding people that work together. Um, and uh, so I'm going to go with that scene. In terms of who I would recast with this podcast, Patron Saint character, John Lithgow, um, you know, it is the great tragedy of this segment that so often we are unable to give him the lead role of a movie just because he yeah. has a very particular kind of, of – um, you know, strengths, or a series of strengths, really, that, you know, a lot of the them aren't really conducive to playing the Brad Pitt role or the, you know, the Tom Cruise role, the leading man role. Here, though, I think he w- would work brilliantly in the role of Cal. I think that mm. 40-year-old John Lithgow 
in this role would be an absolute fit. He would get the comedy, the pathos. He would have the soulfulness that Steve Carell has. He had the dramatic chops. He has the comedic chops. Um, Yeah, I'm going with Cal. Uh, So for me, I'm going to give my MVP to... I I have to entirely agree with Lawson here, uh, Stone and Gosling. They just work together so well. And while I think Emma Stone can have chemistry with pretty much anybody uh, that she's put up with, that particular chemistry with Ryan Gosling is so remarkable that they dipped into it thrice. And it just goes to show why they did that. They're both consummate performers, both really talented at at emotional moments, but also have this tete-a-tete, this rhythm that they sink into comedically that works very, very well. It's also leading into my favorite scene of sequence. It's the same as Lawson's. It's the bit where they're at Cal's place. They have their banter, and I don't like using the word banter, but it is that here. I love the moment where he's talking about his dirty dancing move, and that back and forth, all the stuff where they're just talking to each other, and that's the kind of intimacy that Jacob was missing. And you can probably tell that's the kind of intimacy that uh, Hannah was missing with Josh Groban. And I don't know, it's just sweet. It's very sweet well scripted, well edited together, and it ends with the PG ending of the night. She covers him with the blanket and kisses him on the cheek. And, I don't know, it just comes together really, really nicely. I agree with Lawson. Uh, Not only because I do think Lithgow would be fantastic as Cal, he's also, outside of the John Carroll Lynch role, is there many other opportunities for him in this one? I really don't think so. Uh, And I'd want to give him something with a bit of prominence. Like Lawson said, we so rarely get to see him as the leading man. Well, get to choose him as the leading man here. And this is the perfect opportunity for that. Sucks to see Steve Carell not get this role, because I really, really like what Carell is doing here. But sometimes I just gotta prioritize Sean Lithgow, as in most things. Yeah, I give it to Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling as well. They come as a pair for this movie because all of what they're doing is working so well together. Both of their characters are fascinating people, and when you get them in the same room together, magic happens. And the relationship that builds between them is beautiful. That you see the walls come down almost instantly, you see all of the bravado and all of the bullshit get washed away, and they just talk throughout the whole night. And it's a beautiful sequence. And I agree with you guys that that, I think, is the best scene in the movie, because that's the scene that really sort of encapsulates what all of the characters are looking for. We needed an example to say, here is the spark that Emily and Cal are missing, the spark that Robbie wants in his life, the spark that Jessica wants in her life. The spark this that... is an example of it working. Exactly. The spark that Jacob has been looking for. The spark that Hannah wasn't finding with Josh Groban. And it's a beautifully acted and written scene. Even if trying to do that uh, dirty dancing lift thing scared the living shit out of Emma Stone. So they eventually had to use a stunt double to do it. I think it's a fantastic sequence. My second favorite is, of course, when everything goes tits up at the little at the backyard gesture because 
when everything falls apart, it is it's like watching a hundred dominoes just falling in perfect sync. It's fantastic. For who I would get John Lithgow as, I think Cal is definitely a good choice. Because he's got the pathos, he's got the humor, he's got the soulfulness. He can switch it on a dime, and he has that essence to him. But I wouldn't have been against him being maybe Jacob when he was younger. Because I feel like there's a lot that Lithgow can do for that role. But, you know, that's wishful thinking. He's the age he is. So, Cal is the pick. Either that or Bernie. Because the idea of John on Lithgow coming out of absolutely nowhere and tackling Steve Carell to the ground is a great image. Right. So now we're going to put it to a vote whether or not we are a pro-crazy stupid love podcast or not. Lawson, why don't you cast your vote first? Uh, I'm saying yes. I really like this movie. I think it's a lot of fun. It's very entertaining. has a lot of heart to it as well. It's it's really well written. It's acted so well. Um, and I just have a great time watching it. So I'm going to say yes. Uh, yeah, I'll agree. A uh, bit softer of a yes this time around. Because I really do think that thing with the pictures at the end soured me a bit. But I try not to hold that too much against the movie. The rest of the movie is incredibly strong. Great cast, great script. Really strong fundamental storytelling. Um, And that chemistry between the characters and the actors is just remarkable stuff. I, I really had a great time with this. It is right-minded. It is aged, yes. But I don't get the feeling it is aged as poorly as some of the rest of its kind will have done by this point. Yeah, it's a pro for me. I love what the movie is doing, how it's talking about these topics. It's focusing on a lot more than something like This Is 40 did. It is focusing on a wider range of topics. But it all comes down to connection and communication. It is a movie that wants people to be able to think about the relationships that they have in their lives and be able to build on them. And it's a movie that wants people to think about it while also have a really fun time watching really great actors do a good job. Except for Marissa Tomei, who is a good actor who doesn't do a great job here. So... There you have it, we are a pro-Crazy Stupid Love podcast. We've been on kind of a run here, haven't we? I uh, think so. I mean, we didn't have perfect hosts, we didn't have... um. No, but that would have been if it didn't stumble at the end, I don't think. Um, Yeah. So, if you would like to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. If you find those at Extra Dude, the Candy Count of a John Myself on the Bright Side, you can also reach us through our Twitter, which is the best place to give us episode specific feedback and movie recommendations. What do you think about Crazy Stupid Love? What is your favorite, I guess, rom com of the era? Uh, you can also like, rate, comment, share, and subscribe on your podcast app of choice. Just keep in mind on certain podcast apps, uh, you're commenting on the show on the whole and on others, it is for specific episodes. Mileage simply varies depending on what service you use. Uh, just keep in mind, if you are commenting on the show on the whole, cite the episode you're referring to in your comment. Just gives us a better sense of what you're actually saying. Uh, yeah. Uh, we'll also take recommendations for f- movies there, also. And no, I'm not doing a three-hour movie as a recommendation. Not again. <laughs> uh, but yeah, please do, please do like, rate, comment, share, and subscribe. 
Ever since the year 2023, machines have developed a sort of fascination with actor Ryan Gosling, styling themselves in terms of personality and look based upon his work. Ken being the major example of a character reaching a state of self-awareness and singularity. They also run around a lot dressed as just him. It's that in mascots for the most part. There's something mathematical about the face that they like. So Lawson, what have we got for next week? Uh, well, next week we'll be doing a pivot to a very different kind of movie. Um, it is the 2011 remake of Fright Night. Okay. Um, have you guys ever seen it before? Yeah, we have. Yep. We've I seen have the original not. as well. I have seen the original. I haven't seen this one. So uh, I'll be interested to talk it through with you guys, as I'm a big fan of the original. Um, but if you would like to follow along at home, you can find it available for streaming in Australia on Disney+. Plus. You can also find it available for purchase or rental. Actually, only purchase, because again, Disney doesn't let you rent stuff anymore, from the Apple, Amazon, and YouTube stores. Yep, so join us next week for when we take a little bit more of a dip into horror, back into vampire territory, with Fright Night, the remake, naturally. Until then, I have been Holly Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been, and will continue to be, Jean Lewis. Lewis.